Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. If you have not, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have some amazing merch and plenty of other things for you guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today, we are going to the deep reaches of spooky space. And exploring the world with Isaac Clark. A little spooktober action going on for you. This game is super creepy. Um, And generally, that is a big no-no for old Derek. I am not into the creepy genres, but I did play Dead Space. Um, couldn't sleep very well after playing Dead mm-hmm, Space. Mm-hmm. Still think about it sometimes, all that lost sleep. I think I'm trying to catch up on it now. Hopefully that's not an issue after doing this podcast episode with you. Absolutely. So as Derek had said, we're going to be talking about Dead Space today. What might have been System Shock 3, but ends up being in EA's hands to give us kind of what people have compared to a horror game in the kind of like an alien-esque game where it's kind of like it's not a marine going in it's kind of like what a space trucker would be an alien you have isaac as an engineer here who is seeking out his girlfriend uh who was on this ship doing an illegal mining operation and things went south so goes to head out there and things unfold and the alien uh, horror films are so spooky creepy but also it's really interesting to see how many games have drawn inspiration from those series uh, Mm -hmm. of of films where it's just there's this unknown there's this potential thing locked away that you kind of tap into you know you think back to the halo games where it's oh yeah we've got this thing quarantined and contained oh no there's the flood we weren't supposed to do that we've over-investigated, searched around, tried to to find solutions for humanity a little bit too deep and unlocked something sinister. So pretty classic space horror setup. Yeah, and, and to all those Halo fans out there, yes, Halo 1 was basically a ripoff of Aliens, <laughs> with Sergeant Johnson being a direct character from that game, but I digress. <laughs> Dead Space is a 2008 survival horror video game developed by EA Redwood Shores and published by Electronic Arts for the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and Microsoft Windows. It was released in October 2008. The title was the first in the Dead Space franchise and drew inspiration from other works of horror, notably Resident Evil 4 and the Silent Hill series. Set on a mining spaceship overrun by monsters called Necromorphs, the player controls engineer Isaac Clark from the third-person perspective as he navigates the spaceship, fights Necromorphs, and struggles with increasing psychosis. The player explores areas on the station through a chapter-based narrative, solving environmental puzzles, 
while finding ammunition and equipment to survive. Isaac wields engineering equipment as weapons. Dead Space was pitched in early 2006 and fit Electronic Arts' priority of creating new intellectual properties. A prototype of the game was developed for the original Xbox console and lasted 18 months. The team aimed for realism and innovation in their design. In the pursuit of these goals, the team removed set spawn points for enemies and omitted the heads-up display in favor of presenting information in the world. Immersive and frightening sound design was a large priority during production, and the score by Jason Graves was noted by critics to successfully evoke tension and unease. It absolutely did. And, and again, bringing out those elements of like removing the HUD, making it more cinematic and, and putting you into this realm just changed up so much of what the game could be, especially in the horror genre, which around this time we start to see a lot more of. So let's just talk a bit about EA Redwood Shores, um, which then becomes Viscera Games. So in 1998, Electronic Arts moved from San Mateo, California, to a new corporate headquarters building that they had constructed in Redwood Shores, California. In their move, they founded a studio at this new location named EA Redwood Shores, which operated under the general EA Games division. Redwood Shores' initial title was Future Cop, LAPD, released in 1998. Subsequent games through 2008 were generally licensed tie-ins with movies and other properties. According to designers Ben Wannett and Wright Bagwell, EA had not been keen on producing original intellectual property during this time, and the studio was pursuing an idea of making a second sequel to System Shock. And Vice President and General Manager Glenn Schofield had been trying to coax EA's executives to let them pursue this. While they had some gameplay and ideas set for this game, the title changed upon the release of Capcom's Resident Evil 4 in 2005, which received high critical praise and commercial success. According to Wannett and Bagwell, not only did Resident Evil 4 alter their ideas for the System Shock game, but it also helped Showfield to convince EA's management to let them pursue a new title. The game became known as Dead Space. Dead Space was a critical success, leading the studio to be rebranded to Visceral Games in 2009. Along with this, the studio was moved out from the EA games and became its own division under EA, being the first genre studio within the company with the focus of developing third-person action games in the same vein as Dead Space. Alongside the rebranding, two sister studios, Viscera Montreal in Montreal, Quebec, alongside EA Montreal, and Viscera Melbourne in Melbourne, Australia, were established. Dead Space was the creation of Glenn Schofield, at the time working at EA Redwood Shores. Schofield wanted to create what he felt like would be the most frightening horror game possible. His concept drew influence from the Resident Evil series, the Silent Hill series, and, of course, Resident Evil 4. Shores had established itself as a studio for licensed game properties, and the team saw an opportunity to branch out into original properties, establishing themselves as a proper game studio. During this early stage, the game was known as Rancid Moon. Dead Space was described as a project that multiple staff at Redwood Shores wanted to work on for many years. Co-director Michael Cordry described it in 2014 as a grassroots-style project where the team were eager to prove themselves but not expecting the game to become anything on a large scale. When they pitched the game to parent company EA in early 2006, they were given three months to create a prototype. In order to get a playable concept ready within that time, the prototype was developed on the original Xbox hardware the team decided that it would be better to get something playable before planning how to make the game work on next-generation hardware. 
Their twin approaches of early demos and aggressive internal promotion ran counter to EA practices for new games at the time. EA eventually approved the game after seeing a vertical build of the game equivalent to just one level, but by then, all the basic gameplay elements had been settled upon. According to co-producer Chuck Beaver, this pre-greenlight work lasted 18 months. After approval and using their experience creating the vertical slice, the team built 11 more levels in just 10 months. The team reused the game engine they had designed for The Godfather, which was chosen because it had been tailored to their development style, supported the necessary environmental effects, and implemented the Havoc physics engine. And as I discussed a little earlier, you know, this was EA's kind of idea of like, hmm, we're going to try and do a System Shock 2. Maybe this can be a System Shock 3, potentially, before they had those, those cogs working. So System Shock 2 had amassed a cult following with fans asking for a sequel. On January 9th, 2006, GameSpot reported that EA had renewed its trademark protection on the System Shock name, leading to speculation that System Shock 3 might be under development. Three days later, Computer and Video Games reported a reliable source had come forward and confirmed the title's production. EA UK made no comment when confronted with the information. PC Gamer UK stated the team behind The Godfather, the game, which was Redwood Shores, was charged with its creation. Ken Levine, when asked whether he would helm the third installment, replied, quote, That question is completely out of my hands. He expressed optimism at the prospect of System Shock 3, but revealed that EA had not shown interest in his own proposal for a sequel and was not optimistic with regards to their abilities. EA did not confirm a new title in the series and allowed the System Shock trademark registration to lapse. Redward Shore's next release was obviously 2008's Dead Space, a game with noted similarities in theme and presentation to the System Shock series. According to Dead Space designers Ben Wannett and Wright Bagwell, their project was originally intended to be that System Shock 3, but when they saw that Resident Evil 4, they went, we can't do a 3, it's before a 4, we gotta make a new game. And so they wanted to go ahead and make their own style of kind of Resident Evil-esque, but in space. So, Showfield wanted to create a game that ran counter to EA's usual output. To help guide the team, Showfield often described Dead Space as uh, basically, like Alex said, uh, just a Resident Evil in space. There are different accounts of the game's relationship with the System Shock series. Condre said that Dead Space was influenced only by System Shock and System Shock 2. Co-designer Ben Wannett stated that the team was originally planning a third entry in the System Shock series and played through the originals for reference, but when Resident Evil 4 was released, they decided to make their own intellectual property based around its gameplay. While greatly influenced by Resident Evil 4, Showfield wanted to make the game more active, as the necessity to stop and shoot in RE4 often broke his immersion. The gameplay balance was aimed somewhere between the faster pace of third-person shooters and the slower pace of many horror games. Resource management underwent constant tuning and balancing to make the game tense, but not unfair or frustrating. Immersion was a core element of the game, with HUD elements being in-universe and story sequences like cutscenes and audio or video logs playing in real time. In addition, the standard HUD elements were incorporated into the environment with suitable contextual or overt in-game explanations. In the team's opinion, the setting was better realized and conveyed as a side effect of this approach. A quick turn option was implemented and removed several times during production. It was finally removed because mapping the feature to the last available controller buttons caused test players to turn 
accidentally during dangerous situations. The Microsoft Windows version of the control scheme went through several different configurations, with the team wanting the best possible configuration for mouse and keyboard. I mean, could you imagine just going up and you're like in this intense fight and you accidentally hit like B or something they map it to and you just do like a full 180 to that fight and just lose it? Bad controls can absolutely ruin the immersion for sure. 100%, especially in a game like this where it's it's so visceral and, and spooky and you're just trying to get to those elements of it. You know, quick turn option is is neat, but I also like the realism of like not being able to like just 180 it take off a shot 180 keep running you have to kind of like turn and go along with it right definitely and especially in a horror game like this Mm -hmm. where you don't want to die and then experience that same thing again because it's not really as spooky the second time around you know there's a little bit of a shock factor there so making sure that you can get through these fights you know as frequently as possible and not you know letting these things get repetitive i feel like is really important for dead space and I like it too, because like, let's just say on a narrative standpoint, you know, he's an engineer, not necessarily like a, like a trained militia person or military person. So like, he's not going to really know like full kind of combat tactics of like going with this. So kind of being a little clunky with it, I think also just supports the narrative. And that's also me just being the PR person for the game saying it was a good decision. So one of the founding gameplay principles was strategic dismemberment the focus on severing limbs to kill enemies. This distinguished Dead Space from the majority of shooters, which instead placed focus on headshots or allowed volleys of weapon fire against enemies. Weapons accuracy and enemy behavior were adjusted around this concept. For example, enemies became enraged by traditional headshots and charged the player rather than being killed instantly. A two-person co-op multiplayer option was prototyped over a three-month period but was eventually cut so that the team could focus on making a polished single-player experience. We do see that multiplayer come up in Dead Space 3 later down the road because 1 and 2 were thought as too scary and wanted that kind of combined element to it. And you can play with a friend and and kind of double cash in. But I think you really need to polish your solo campaign, especially in like a spooky game, versus just having two people jump into it. A procedural element was created for random enemy placement such that enemies would appear at random points within a room. Thus, players could not memorize and counterattack against patterns, aka speedrun it. There was a mechanism for controlling where enemies would spawn from places like vents, depending on the player's position. One gameplay sequence, where Isaac is ambushed and dragged down a hallway by a large tentacle, stalled development for a month. The team initially planned it as an instant death, then changed the attack to be an interactive one that Isaac had to escape. A dedicated set of mechanics and animations had to be created for the sequence, and Schofield admitted that the way and order he assigned tasks stopped the sequence working properly. To make the sequence work, the team shifted to a layered production structure, which focused on finishing one section at a time so that they could pinpoint problems with ease. The team had to cut two other unspecified pieces to allow the tentacle sequence to work. Ultimately, this problem helped build up team confidence, allowing them to tackle other problems in the game and add more content. You know, where else do tentacles work but hentai and Dead Space production? Gross. <laughs> the character animation was designed to be realistic with extensive transitional animations to smooth out shifts between different stances for both the player, other characters, and enemies. 
The zero-g sections were in place alongside the setting, and the team performed extensive research on real space exploration and survival to get the atmosphere movement right. Implementing zero-g was difficult, with Beaver describing the process as months and months and months of work. While technically easy to achieve by switching off gravity values in Havoc, reprogramming sections to be convincing and fun to play presented challenges. Isaac needed a separate series of animations for zero-g environments with his sluggish movement achieved by animation director Chris Stone doing an exaggerated stomping walk with bungee cables strapped to his legs. Due to the number of ways that Isaac could die, his model was given dozens of points where he could be torn apart, and the death scenes became a part of the game's visual identity. A key issue for the team when designing the horror elements was not reusing the same scares too many times and allowing for moments of safety for the player without completely losing the tension. In earlier builds, the team made extensive use of jump scares, but as they grew less frightening, they were thinned out and more emphasis was placed on the in-game atmosphere. And I'm glad that they made those changes because there's really two outcomes where either you're playing a game where you're so stressed out and tense the whole time that you really don't even want to play it by the end, or like they said, you know, by the end, you've seen the same scary thing pop out of event 50 times, and it's no longer scary. You see event, you just anticipate that that's going to happen. Yeah, you just know, because there's plenty of those games that have tried that, and what you do in a shooter is you just pre-fire it. You know right. something's going to pop out. You know the vents do that, so you might as well just start firing at the vent and kill it before it even, like, spawns in, and it just loses any of that presence any of that idea and again going back to the alien franchise especially the first few movies is having that tension of like multiple vents and multiple areas that things could come from especially just in in the first alien and not knowing exactly where it is but just hearing that blip 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 of the motion tracker and only having that idea and they usually i mean they really did that and built that up in this game to have that especially with the random enemy spawn points and having them come in so you can't just again know that in this science lab room you're going into pre-fire to the left corner on the right because that's where they're going to be. When the game was still titled Rancid Moon, Schofield envisioned a scenario similar to Escape from New York, set on a prison planet in outer space. The team liked the space element, but disliked the prison setting. In contrast with many game productions at the time, where the story had a low priority, the team chose to have the story defined from the outset then build the levels and objectives around it. The first solid concept was the mining of planets by humans, with the twist that one planet that they mine holds something dangerous. Due to the focus on player immersion, there was little to no traditional cutscenes, with all the narrative being communicated through real-time interaction. The themes of religion and rogue states outside Earth's control were decided upon to ground the science fiction narrative. Unitology emerged five months into development, as Schofield felt that something was missing. After reading up on the Chicks Club crater, Schofield wrote the original marker as the object which caused the crater and built Unitology around it. In response to a later comparison of Unitology with Scientology, it was described as representing irrational thought and action prompted by the unknown. A key early inspiration for the game's tone was the film Event Horizon. Schofield cited the film's use of visual storytelling and camera work, referencing a particular scene where the audience sees a scene of gore, mist, 
by the on-screen character as an early inspiration. Another strong influence on Schofield was the French horror film Martyrs. Several elements made reference to other science fiction movies. Isaac's struggle was compared to that of Ellen Ripley from Alien, the dementia suffered by characters referenced Solaris, and the sense of desperation mirrored that in the story of Sunshine. How the story was conveyed was a mechanical challenge due to both the real-time elements and the ability to complete some objectives out of order. The scenario was a collaborative effort between Warren Ellis, Rick Remender, and Anthony Johnson. Ellis created a lot of background lore and groundwork, and that draft was given to Remender, who wrote out planned scenes, added some scenes of his own, and performed rewrites before the script was handed to Johnston. Johnston, who was involved in writing the game's additional media, worked references to those other works into the game's script. And while the scripting process lasted two years, Johnston only worked on the game for the last eight months of that time. Much of his work focused on the dialogue, which had to fit around key events, which had already been solidified. Johnston also contributed heavily to the audio logs, which he used to create additional storyline and flesh out the narrative. And if you're a comic book fan at all, Warren Ellis and Rick Remender are definitely names that stand out. They've, they've done a lot of big comic book series um, and graphic novels. And this method of creating a storyline is very, very, very commonplace within the comic book industry where you are basically storyboarding a lot of times as a writer. Mm-hmm. And then you're handing things off to your artist and your artist is handing things off to an inker, and then you've got someone that does the colors for everything. It's very much a big collaborative effort, and a lot of times you end up with five, six, seven, eight people all working on just a single issue of a comic book, and some people are doing the dialogue, some people are just, you know, like we said, doing a little bit more of a storyboarding, and that's more of the modern way of doing comics. In, in the inverse, there are authors like Alan Moore, who did Watchmen, who they want to lay out every single detail. They say, okay, this is the dialogue. This is what it's going to be. This is how I want you to draw this. Do it this way. Do these colors. But having this more collaborative effort, I feel like it really works well for a video game series because where you have this difference within you know, the creative people and the writers and people who actually do the programming, it's important to be able to convey a certain image, imagery and themes Mm -hmm. that you have to have particular talents to be able to convey those things in a way that you can't really fully understand. It'd be like telling a musician, you know, to play a particular part on an instrument that you yourself don't know how to play. And being able to describe things to them in that way so that they can execute it, it's a, it's a very unique and important skill. And it makes so much sense for, like you said, especially game-wise, especially games that want to do the audio logs. They want to tell a lot of the lore through audio logs or like in Skyrim through books or through a little like things they find that you have kind of these two basic story editors that work on it. And then you have a third come in that says, okay, I've created all the extra materials. Now I will build that into your universe to make all of this concise and make sense to really flesh this out and to make sure that those extra materials that, you know, some of us aren't really going to care about, but the ones that do, it builds into it and it really fleshes that out and, and it works. I mean, I look towards a game that I played recently a couple months ago, uh, The Medium. 
uh, which had such a fantastic second story telling that actually builds up into the mainline story as you continue to find it. So when it's done well, it's done well. So Isaac, with his non-military role and backstory, was meant to appeal to players as an average person who is not trained for combat or survival. His armor and weapon design followed the principle of him being an untrained engineer. The armor is a work suit for conditions compared by staff to an oil rig in space, while the weapons are mining tools. Isaac's name made references to two science fiction authors, Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. The design of the ship environments deliberately moved away from traditional science fiction, which they saw as being overly clean and lacking function. The large number of familiar environments and designs, in addition to making the Ishimura a believable living environment, increased the horror elements, as they would be familiar to players. To achieve the realistic feel, they emulated Gothic architecture, which fitted their vision both practically and aesthetically. The lighting was based on light from the strong lamps used in dentistry. Now for the necromorphs, those were designed by Wanit. Similar to the ship design, Wanit designed the necromorphs to be more realistic and relatable. His approach to them was to illustrate how the human form looked after it was, quote, ravaged by a violent transformation that literally ripped it inside out. Hint, hint, flood. <laughs> they retained elements of their original human form, increasing their disturbing nature. As reference, the team used medical images and scenes from car crashes, copying injuries and incorporating them into the monster designs. Now, if I'm on your team, an artist, they're like, hey, I got this packet of images, just, just some images to look at, just for some references, and you flip it open and you got basically some crime scene stuff for me? No, thank you. Yeah, no. I don't know if I could do that. That's uh, Yeah, it's just... It takes a certain stomach, right? I feel like I've been desensitized a little bit to that stuff just by sure. the graphic nature of some video games that have gotten to be a little bit more realistic. You know, playing the mm -hmm. Rockstar games in particular, playing like an L.A. Noir, where you walk into a crime scene and see like a, a murder or something. Like mm -hmm. some of that stuff can be like pretty shocking, especially if you're not already a little desensitized by playing games that are similar to that but to have someone hand you like a folder that's filled with real life crime scenes yeah i mean and to open that up and just have that on your desk and then be looking at it long enough to try and make that appear within a video game as realistic as possible i yeah i don't think that's something that i could do i could because not only that those images were also referenced for the dead bodies right laying around so i mean it's a lot to ingest, you know, just to get this art form, you know, to the, the, the perfected way, I guess you would say. I don't know. But, but back to the necromorphs. Their multi-limbed or tentacle appearance was actually dictated by the dismemberment gameplay we talked about, as having enemies without limbs would not work. Their in-universe name drew inspiration from the kind of code naming that happens in war zones among soldiers. And so kind of wrapping this all up, we've really dedicated on this art side of it and really dedicated on that, that limb, like notation of like using that instead of headshots, instead of like just running through headshotting stuff, it actually like works against you. And it's, it's kind of cool to see how that dismemberment engine works with it. And all in all, on October 1st, 2008, the game was finished 
and sent off for certifications and production to be released about a week later. Alongside the video game, the Dead Space team and EA created a multimedia universe around the game to promote it uh, and show off different elements of its lore and story that are referenced throughout the game. The positive response and development was prompted by enthusiasm for the Vertical Slice demo. The first media expansion was a limited comic series written by Johnston and illustrated by Ben Templesmith, running between March and September 2008. The next was an animated film, Dead Space Downfall, produced by Film Roman and released in October 2008. The comic covers the five weeks following the marker's discovery on Aegis 7, while Downfall reveals how the Ishimura was overtaken. In addition, Electronic Arts launched an episodic alternate reality game with a dedicated website titled No Known Survivors. It was developed by web creator Deep Focus. The challenge for Deep Focus was creating an immersive experience which would excite potential players while being unique to the online environment. According to creative director Nick Baraccia, the aim was to take pieces of the Dead Space lore and, quote, blow them up in ways that could only work in that environment. The production lasted 14 months while more interactive events were considered. The production timeline meant several concepts were cut. The point-and-click interface style and the limited exploration space of a single room per scenario was chosen due to technical limitations and to create an experience impractical on mainstream consoles. The scenario of No Known Survivors was written by Johnston. Over the nine weeks prior to the game's release, players could open the different episodes using graphics of mutated human limbs. Exploring in the style of a point-and-click adventure game, the story was split across two episodic stories told through a combination of audio logs, short animations, and written documents found in each environment. Halo ODST? Mm-hmm. The two episodes were Misplaced Affection, which told of a hiding medical technician remembering his attempted affair with another crew person, and 13, which focused on a government sleeper agent planted aboard the Ishimura. It began its release on August 25th, the final episode of content was released on October 21st alongside the game. Signing up on particular dates unlocked a discount for the game, with the top prize being a reproduction of Isaac's helmet. It is pretty sweet to like be able to play that. Like The helmet, again, I know there's plenty of iconic helmets out there. The Dead Space one is up there for me. Absolutely. It's a really cool helmet. It kind of reminds me of like Boba Fett. It just has like mm-hmm. this cool space um, sci-fi vibe for sure. And, and going back to like that gothic theme of it too, it, it like builds in this kind of Renaissance night helmet into this space helmet for me as well. That just like, it's all practical with like some elements that are built in for like, you know, looking like a mining helmet or like an engineer's helmet. But right. for the most part, it's like practical, which I really, really enjoy. It's kind of got like a welder's feel to it. So, yes, I, I love the design work of it. So we've got, you know, a couple more tidbits of marketing for you. We have the console suits. So depending on whether you play this on the PlayStation 3 or the Xbox 360, uh, if you got it within the first two weeks of its release, you would receive exclusive suits for those respective consoles. So you get a PlayStation 3-specific one or an Xbox-specific one. And then we also had the Ultra Limited Edition. This was limited to 1,000 copies exclusive to the Xbox 360. It contained a copy of the game, Dead Space Downfall, bonus content DVD, a 97-page art book, 
the 160-page graphic novel, which is all six of those uh, comic book issues together, exclusive lithograph illustrated and individually signed by Ben Templesmith and an Ishimura crew patch. So again, going back to my love of the physicals, my love of like the physical limited edition releases, got some cool stuff with it. Yeah, definitely cool for sure. And I miss, you know, them really doing that to the level that they used to. The console suits, particularly, uh, it's kind of goofy to me now going back and thinking about it because it's exactly what you would think. It's like, yep, the PlayStation 3 one was this dark black suit designed to kind of be the console. I think it had like a red glow to it. Yep. Maybe a little bit of a blue glow as well. And then the Xbox 361 was like a white, I'd say like a light green, but like more on the white side of just a weird little tint. Mm -hmm. And it's like, do you really need to be reminded what console you own within the game? Are you that big of a fan of the console that you're like, oh man, I got to have the... And this was when the consoles were still all white, if I remember right, for Xbox 360. So Yes. Yeah, until you got to like the Xbox 360 Elites or whatever that you could get the black one. These It was the, the white versus black consoles. The console wars were in full fuel. Like the, the fuel was everywhere because next gen, this is what you had to do. And now it's kind of dead at this purpose. But it worked back then. And if you wanted to be basically a, a, a giant walking console in Dead Space, you could. There were... So many games that just followed that theme for whatever reason. Like, they really dug into the Console Wars concept when creating content. I mm-hmm. think about Soul Calibur 4, yep. where if you had the PlayStation version at first, you were going to get Darth Vader. So you get the black and red. Mm-hmm. And then if you are an Xbox owner, you get Yoda, who's like white and green. It's like, dude, we get it. We understand. <laughs> they are different colors. And I guess at that time, since like DLCs were still expensive to put on like the Xbox store, the PlayStation Network store, kind of put them out there that this would kind of like it did the Pokemon thing of like you want to buy both editions of it to get like the exclusives of, you know, between Pokemon Red and Blue, Gold and Silver, like this few Pokemon you couldn't get. So now it's like, ooh, do you want Yoda or Darth Vader? (laughs) Poor Canelos Dos if you buy both consoles. (laughs) But then like imagine if in those Pokemon games... Um, you like if you had the blue version, all the Pokemon in there were blue, and like that was the only way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, technically, they really were back if you then. played it you on uh, hit, the Game Boy Color, yeah. yeah. I think that they shaded those first two to be red or blue, depending on your so, yep, weird yeah, times, back not that then. far off, but just just really strange. I, I guess I still prefer it to like the uh store exclusive stuff. Yeah, but I'd feel a little bit gypped if I was playing Dead Space, you know, on the Xbox 360 with that suit. When I did play it, I, it was on 360, but I didn't get that bonus. But the black suit is just so much cooler and it fits so much better within mm-hmm. the context of Dead Space. So, um, I don't know, a little weird, a little funny. Yeah, but hey, we're out of that era. It's cross play every day, baby. <laughs> That's right. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. 
If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. So Dead Space is set in the year 2508, a time when humanity has spread throughout the universe. Following near extinction of human life on Earth due to resource shortages, ships dubbed planet crackers are being used to harvest resources from barren planets. The oldest planet cracker is the USG Ishimura, which is performing an illegal mining operation on the planet Aegis 7. The backstory reveals that Aegis 7 was the home of a red marker, a man-made copy of the original alien marker monolith discovered on Earth. Attempts to weaponize the marker and its copies led to the creation of a virus-like organism that infected corpses and transformed them into monsters called necromorphs. Two key factions in Dead Space are the Earth government, which created and then hid the red markers, and Unitology, a religious movement that worships the markers. Unitology was founded in the name of original researcher Michael Altman. In the events leading up to Dead Space, the colony on Aegis 7 discovers the red marker hidden there. Following its discovery and the Ishimura's arrival, first the colonists and then the ship's crew begin suffering from hallucinations and eventually severe mental illness, climaxing in the emergence of the Necromorphs. By the time the maintenance ship Kellyan arrives, the entire Aegis 7 colony and all but a few of the Ishimura crew have been killed or turned into Necromorphs. The game's protagonist is Isaac Clarke, an engineer who travels on the Kellyan to find out what happened to his girlfriend, Nicole Brennan, the Ishimura's senior medical officer. Aboard the Kellyan with Isaac are Chief Security Officer Zach Hammond and Computer Technician Kendra Daniels, unbeknownst to the Kellyan crew, Kendra is actually an Earth government agent sent to control the situation. Other characters encountered by Isaac on the Ishimura are Chalice Mercer, an insane scientist who believes the necromorphs are humanity's ascended form, Dr. Terrence Kine, a survivor who wants to return the marker to Aegis 7, and Nicole, who mysteriously communicates with and appears to Isaac at various points through the ship. So again, a uh- Interesting cast that like survives with it. These characters who you don't really interact too much with, but kind of push the story along and just give you some elements, especially like when you get to like an insane scientist who's like, no, 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 this is what we're meant to be right here, baby. Give me them limbs. There's always that one guy, right? He's like, oh yeah, humans are Mm -hmm. imperfect. I've got to achieve something greater. I mean, look, bro, I don't know about you. I'm not interested in becoming Dr. Octopus, but... (laughs) <laughs> I appreciate the candor, but no, no thanks. Yeah. You know, and especially like own. maybe like if you're like a smart scientist guy, I feel like those people are generally portrayed to mm-hmm. be really ugly people. So he's like, well, I'm already ugly. So if I become this necromorph, at least I'm like a BA that can murder anyone around me. And that's true. Hey, Mo limbs, mo problems. I can, yeah, drink water, coffee, and tea all at the same time. <laughs> all them limbs. Just taking the sip in action on tour. <laughs> all right, let me get back. Let's go to the story. So Isaac arrives at Aegis 7 on the Kellyan with Kendra and Hammond. During the journey, Isaac has been repeatedly watching a video message from Nicole. 
A docking malfunction. Cra- simp. What? Simp. <laughs> <laughs> Too true. A docking malfunction crashes the Kellyan into the Ishimura's landing bay, and the ship's quarantine is broken. Necromorphs kill all of the Kellyan crew but Isaac, Kendra, and Hammond. Isaac navigates the ship, restoring systems and finding parts with which to repair the ship so that they may escape. They almost succeed, but the Kellyan is destroyed in a further malfunction. During these events, all three survivors begin experiencing escalating symptoms of psychosis and dementia, ranging from hallucinations to paranoia. During his exploration, Isaac learns through audio and video logs about the ship's presence and necromorph invasion. The Ishimura's illegal mining operation on Aegis 7, which was designated off-limits by the Earth government, was meant to find the red marker for the Church of Unitology. The Aegis 7 colony was almost entirely wiped out by mass psychosis triggered by the marker, causing killings and suicides. The marker was brought aboard the Ishimura, along with survivors and bodies from the colony. A combination of the marker's influence, factional fighting, and the emerging necromorph invasion resulted in the deaths of nearly everyone aboard. Isaac finds the two remaining survivors of the Ishimura crew, Dr. Terence Kine, who had abandoned his belief in unitology, and Dr. Callis Mercer, who had gone insane and worships the necromorphs. So, a little bit of... A little, a little bit of a, scales. A little B. A little column A, a little column B. <laughs> column A, column B going on right here. Despite Isaac's efforts, Hammond is killed by a necromorph, and Mercer allows himself to be transformed by them, of course. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you? You're already there, why not? Another ship, the Valor, arrives and is infected through an Ishimura escape pod containing a necromorph. Records show that the Valor was dispatched to remove all traces of the Ishimura's presence. Kendra kills Kine before revealing her Earth government allegiance as the deranged Kine threatened to return the marker to the necromorph's controlling hive mind on the planet. The marker was left on Aegis 7 as part of an experiment, and the Earth now wants it retrieved. United with Nicole, Isaac sabotages Kendra's attempt to escape the Ishimura and then returns the marker to Aegis 7, neutralizing the necromorphs and initiating Aegis 7's collapse. Kendra retrieves the marker and reveals to Isaac that his encounters with Nicole were hallucinations created by the marker to return it to the hive mind. Nicole's message had ended with her committing suicide to avoid becoming a necromorph. Kendra is then killed by the awoken hive mind before she can escape with the marker. After killing the hive mind, Isaac leaves on Kendra's shuttle as both Aegis 7 and the marker are destroyed. In the shuttle, a distraught Isaac mourns Nicole and is then attacked by a violent hallucination of her. So again, you can see just such a fantastic detail to story and so much character-driven things to it. And I love the idea of just psychosis and hallucinations, especially when it comes to space things and just horror in general. It just works so well. Yeah, it to be able to, I think suspend the the disbelief i guess or create a reality that you're just unsure i think of a movie like uh, a beautiful mind mm-hmm. where you're watching this man go insane but it's not presented that way until very late in the movie and you don't necessarily understand what's really happening to him you there are little signs that are there that are showing like hey he's going a little nuts but the game and you know movies like that present things like they are really happening until they're not. Yes, and so it creates a cool little concept where 
you almost get a different replay value the second playthrough if you decide to do so, if you, you know, have the, the guts to do that, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, where now you know the truth and you're able to go and play through again and say, well, uh, maybe I notice a few things here that I didn't notice before that, that give me a little bit more of a hint than I noticed the first time that this isn't real. Yes. Or that the hallucinations, you know, are getting worse or pointing me in a specific direction because of something else, because of the hive mind. And you could pick out cool little story elements from things like that. And that's when you know like the the immersion and the the emergence of games and cinema i just gotten so much closer and closer is you do have that same replay value in movies like you said a beautiful mind like seeing those small details of those things occurring that on first watch through are, are just interesting or you might notice a little bit of the elements but when you go back and you know the full story of it you start to see the little seeds planted all over and that's what makes you know in general movies and games fun but especially heavily story-driven ones that have either a twist or have some element, especially of psychosis or dementia or Alzheimer's, that, that build it in to see. Now we see from the outside in instead of the inside out. And if you wanted to, I mean, even within the horror genre, like The Sixth Sense does that as well. If you go back after knowing the end of The Sixth Sense mm-hmm. and watch the movie again, you see so many things that you just didn't see before. And I have to believe the same thing would be true for Dead Space. A hundred percent. So let's touch on two things. One, uh, kind of a failed operation coming out of Dead Space. And two, where we're taking it. So the first thing is the movie. And so at Comic-Con 2009, it was announced that a Dead Space movie was in development with eagle-eyed DJ Caruso set to direct it. Caruso wanted to potentially make it a prequel film. And for years, no real news would come out about the project, but in 2013, EA announced that Caruso was no longer attached to it and that EA would be taking it over with a script written by Philip Gillot with still nothing in the works, but we are in the current age of new video game shows and movies coming out. So we may see, especially with EA, I think especially with EA resurrecting the game with a remake, this might like... It's, it's like holding the table up. It's like one of the legs is wobbly, and it's definitely like the script is holding the table up. But they may pull that out at some point and give us a movie. Well, and now we're kind of in this era where IPs are being recycled at a rate mm-hmm. that we've never really seen before. So back, I don't know, like 10, 12 years ago when this was kind of first speculated on, this was a time where a lot of video games were kind of entering that cinematic uh rumor mill Mm -hmm. and now we see that most of those things went into development hell but because they're trying to recycle these ips because they're trying to make video games last a little bit longer and not put them out every couple years like maybe they had been for a time i think that we are going to see some of this stuff enter the cinematic realm or the television realm and some of it might be good some of it may not be i've been on record many times in this podcast saying like i think it's going to be really difficult for them to do but i could see those ips being put out at a more frequent rate i think now too now that you have so many streaming services that are doing original content and we'll see how the last of us movie does we'll see how the halo tv show does if some of that stuff does well why not have netflix keep picking up netflix is doing the league of legends show so there's, there's a lot of big IPs that are coming out, 
And I think once this first like wave of them gets their reviews, if we even see like a hint of being positive, the market's going to flood. And, and maybe that's a good thing. Who, who knows? We'll have to see. I agree. So one good thing that we are seeing is the Dead Space remake. Now, games journalist Jeff Grubb of GamesBeat actually leaked that a remake of Dead Space was in development at Motive on July 1st, 2021. He speculated that the success of EA's single-player Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order and Capcom's remake of Resident Evil 2 and 3 were instrumental in the publisher's decision to greenlight the Dead Space remake. The game is being developed using EA's proprietary Frostbite engine, which Motive Studios previously used to develop Star Wars Squadrons and the single-player campaign of Star Wars Battlefront 2. The game will retain the same story and structure as the original, but feature redesigned assets, character models, and environments. The developers intend to take full advantage of SSDs on the ninth generation of consoles to have the game be presented as an uninterrupted sequence shot absent of loading screens. Content that was removed from the original game due to technical constraints may also be added back in. The game will not feature any microtransactions, in contrast to Dead Space 3, with which the addition of microtransactions had a pretty negative reception to it. As they do. As one should, especially for a single-player game. I mean, I guess it was co-op-y, but it's Primarily, still. if that's your main draw, mm-hmm. it's pretty rough. So, the art director for the game, Mike Yezgen, previously worked as an art director at EA Montreal, assisting Visceral Games in developing Dead Space 2. Gunnar Wright will be reprising his role as Isaac Clarke, who will be fully voiced, much like his appearances in Dead Space 2 and Dead Space 3. So yeah, we're going to get a full new voice acting cast for it. So again, a lot of the same lines of what we're having, but bringing that back in a higher quality. You know, he's been a voice actor for a while now, maybe bringing just a bit more emotion to it. It's going to be cool. It's always kind of the dream, right, where you get a first game in the series that It's just kind of figuring itself out. It's a really great idea, but there's just stuff in there that maybe needed a little bit of tweaking that they improved on in sequels, even with the first game being successful. I do always kind of want those original games to to get that update. Um, Yeah. I I think we've gone on record like a Red Dead Redemption with like the Red Dead 2 update would be an amazing all-time game. You know, there's so many games that just have to walk before they can run. Yep. And it's nice to see developers want to go back. I mean, obviously they have their own motivations for doing so, primarily monetary motivations, but it's nice to see developers revisit things in the right way, truly try and improve upon them rather than just recycling the same old idea just to recycle it and cash it in. I fully agree with that. And so we're going to see, especially as we get the sequel apocalypse of 2022, 2023 coming out, with some original stuff, but a lot of like remakes, I guess sequel-wise, I'd call it remakes, but a lot of remakes and a lot of just updates to it, as we've seen with Resident Evil series. Again, we're going to get a bunch of movies and a bunch of games. We'll see how they go. So obviously in building a game like this, the sound design is really, really important. And Schofield insisted from an early stage that emphasis be placed on the music and audio design to promote that atmosphere. The sound work was led by Don Vika, and the team included Andrew Lackey, Dave Feiss, and Dave Svensson. Each member's work often overlapped with others. Feiss, the first member to join, mostly worked on weapon designs and the, quote, tweaky, futuristic synth elements. 
Svensson was described as a jack-of-all-trades, working on a wide array of elements, and in particular creating impact sounds and handling the more scripted linear sections. Lackey's contributions focused on boss fights in the opening sections. Despite Vecca's executive role, he, quote, stayed in the trenches as much as possible and worked on every aspect of the sound design. For one of the areas in the game which had no enemies but relied on sound and lighting, audio director Don Vika used sounds recorded from a Bay Area rapid transit train. The results were described by Schofield as a horrible sound. The monster noises used a base of human noises. As an example, the small lurker enemies used human baby sounds as a base mixed in uh, with other noises such as panther growls. It's a really interesting way to do this. And Derek, we've talked about this plenty of times with weird musical stuff of testing right. things and going out. Sound design is such... Sound design, like, for, for, I guess, most career paths is the most, like, in my ex- experience and knowledge was like childlike fun playground stuff. Like just try things out, see what works. You already have a knowledge base of an idea of what you want, but let's keep playing with it. Yeah, I mean, uh, baby sounds in an environment like the one in Dead Space is very creepy. Like mm-hmm. a toddler, a toddler giggle can be like the funniest thing in the world until you're in like a haunted mansion. <laughs> yes. And then a then a child giggle is not as cute or whatever. So, <laughs> you know, using baby sounds and then they're like, how do we make this more aggressive on top of that? It's already creepy. Mm-hmm. We got the baby aspect in this abandoned ship. And now we're going to put a panther growl on top of it to make it aggressive and creepy. And to have ideas like that and actually utilize them in the game, that's the right way to do sound design. It's these other people who are like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go into the, the hills of uh, the Himalayas. I'm going to go and just try and find a bird noise. And I'm going to see if I can incorporate that into the game somehow. And people will do that in the audio production world. And then you'll never be able to hear it. It's strictly there just for them. Mm-hmm. And um, it is really interesting, but glad that they were able to work some of those weird ideas into this and honestly, like, come up with some pretty good sound design. Yeah, I mean, to quote Hannah Montana, it's the best of both worlds. So, oh my God, <laughs> when you mix babies and panthers, and you just quoted Hannah Montana in the Dead Space episode. Hey, listen, that's uh, both are just as scary. That's an all time crossover, there, folks. <laughs> there we go. Hashtag all time crossover. <laughs> As with other elements of production, the team wanted to emphasize realism. When it came to zero-G environments, they muted and muffled any sound and focused on noises from within Isaac's suit, as these mirrored actual experiences in a space vacuum. The sounds played into gameplay as the team wanted players to use sound cues to help anticipate enemy attacks, while also stoking their fear. The team wanted to recreate the scripted sound design of linear horror films in an interactive environment. They watched their favorite horror films, noting their use of sound effects and music and implementing them into Dead Space. One of the constant issues was optimizing the limited amount of RAM the team had for both music and sound effects, which partly inspired the development of specific tools rather than using popular sound design systems. Now, the dialogue and voice implementation was handled by Andrea Plastas and Jason Heffel. The voice audio was recorded during motion capture sessions with the actors. The cast included... Tonetson Carmelo as Kendra, Peter Mensa as Hammond, and Keith 
Sarbaksha as Kine. Isaac is a masked silent protagonist, so the team worked to incorporate personality into his appearance and movement with a large number of animations for his various conditions and actions. This approach was based on the portrayal of Gordon Freeman in Half-Life 2. A vetoed suggestion from EA in early production was that a famous actor should portray Isaac, which we're now getting. So we're going to get a fully voiced Isaac, even though he was silent in the first one. To control the sound design elements, the team created custom software tools. One of the tools they created was dubbed Fearometers, which controlled the volume of music and sound effects based on distance from threats or key events. Other sound tools included Creepy Ambi Patch, which acted as a multi-track organizer for the various sound layers and added randomized internal sounds to create a greater sense of dread. Visual effects, which incorporated sound effects naturally into the environment and to specific areas. And dead script, a scripting language developed as a replacement for a sound language later used for Spore that was taking up too much space in the game's code. So again, it's, it's so much fun to nerd out on some of these things, whether it's actually talking about the sounds or like the actual coding and programs they had to create to make these things work with how they wanted it to work. Absolutely. It, it obviously takes an immense effort from people, a lot of research to, to do it right. And then to not only do it right, but to incorporate as many ideas as you can with that limited RAM, mm-hmm. a big challenge. So on top of the sound design, obviously we have the music which, uh, as far as I know, is probably one of the better soundtracks in video gaming at the time. Oh, yeah. It was composed, arranged, conducted, and mixed by Jason Graves. Rod Abernethy is listed in the credits as a co-composer, but only helped Graves with earlier score planning and conception. Graves joined the Dead Space team a quarter of the way through the game's development after Graves' agent heard EA was in the process of developing a game that required, quote, the scariest music anyone had ever heard. Included in the cited music sound EA was looking for was the work of horror film composer Christopher Young, which Graves had studied with while living in Los Angeles. Because Graves knew the extent of Young's extended orchestral techniques and approaches, Graves sent in a demo reel to EA and was picked after the development team received exactly what they were looking for. Because Graves joined the development team so early in production, he was able to constantly view the game's development as it progressed. Some of the first musical drafts used typical sci-fi action conventions that didn't please EA, who stated, we want even scarier. Being involved so early in development, Graves had time to figure out exactly what kind of music he now needed to write, studying 20th century experimental orchestral music by Ligeti and Penderecki. He then decided that the music needed to sound as non-musical as possible. Now, in order to achieve this, Graves decided not to write character pieces outside of several scripted boss encounters or chase sequences. Instead, he relied upon ambience and 20th century musical composition techniques. Graves recorded many of the unique sounds by himself, which included a tampered piano soundboard, chicken coop wire, and trash cans. When recording the specific orchestral instrument sections, they were allowed to play whatever they wanted within a certain set criteria set by Graves. This allowed for the sounds to sound both unique and scary. The other benefit to this technique was allowing the audio team to record 50 minutes of music every hour, and all of that music being usable. There could be no wrong notes and no bad takes. When it came to the ambient portion of the soundtrack, 
Graves gave every area a predetermined texture, depending on what the atmosphere of the game was at that point. From there, four different layers of sound or music were implemented to reflect the psychological state needed, including twisted metal sounds, distant screams of torture, lurking creatures, spooky whispers, and other sounds. A fear emitter software, as we had talked about, controlled that, and it kept everybody in a constant state of suspense. Sound designer Andrew Lackey said during an interview with WabasabiSound.com, quote, I joked with Graves about making him an honorary sound designer for all the brilliantly messed up score he wrote and recorded. So again, like it goes to show like it's, it's two different fields totally, but it's, it's amazing to see them kind of work together with that too. It's like building this orchestral creepy piece with all this other sound design that they build in and using like that sound emitter and these other different fear things they're using to make it all come together. Yeah, and recording 50 minutes of music every hour and mm-hmm. just saying, hey, there's no bad note, there's no bad take, and just acknowledging that sometimes using off notes, things that aren't necessarily within whatever key you're currently in, um, can sound super creepy and weird if you do it right. I, I think that's the right move. It is, it is very strange. Now, of course... We got people out here playing with uh, chicken coop wire and trash cans because <laughs> yeah. they, they just got to do that. You have must, to. Must do that. And so it is a lot of those traditional audiophile elements, but then it kind of breaks a little bit of composition rules to create something creepy and unique. Mm-hmm. And so to wrap it up, the Dead Space original soundtrack was partially released on November 1st, 2008 through EA's music label, with a larger release on music platforms on November 11th. It contains a total of 17 tracks for a total of 61 minutes and 7 seconds. Graves would release his own album titled Dead Space Original Soundtrack Recording on August 30th, 2009. The soundtrack was performed by Northwest Symphonia at Baxter University Chapel, as well as the Skywalker Sound Orchestra and Choir over a span of five months. Dead Space would win the Best Original Score, and use of audio at the 2009 British Academy Games Awards and Audio of the Year at the 2009 Game Audio Network Guild Awards. The track Welcome Aboard the USG Ishimura was also included on the Amazon release of the greatest video game music album. EA CEO John Ricciatello said that the company would have to lower its expected income for the fiscal year due to multiple commercial disappointments, including Dead Space. Red Shores community manager Ben Swanson would write in an official blog that the game was banned in China, Japan, and Germany. Journalists from Game Politics investigated whether or not these reports were true, but were never given any answers by EA. Eventually, they found out that the game was in fact available in Japan and Germany. Shortly afterwards, EA changed their statement from being banned in China to Korea, since EA does not sell any package products in the country. Many suspected that EA's statement was simply a marketing plot promoting just how brutal the game was. Dead Space debuted weak in sales but eventually sold over a million copies worldwide. The game was met with critical acclaim. Reviewers praised its atmosphere, gameplay, and sound design. It won and was nominated for multiple industry awards and has been ranked by journalists as one of the greatest video games ever made. It spawned two numbered sequels, released in 2011 and 2013, several spin-off titles, and other related media, including a comic book prequel and an animated film, and possibly even more than that. And it has. I mean, it's, it's spawned off, especially, I don't know, I, at the time, 
could you say that like space era stuff was down? Could you say that it was too spooky? Could you say a number of things? Because it was a game that many people regard as one of the top games of all time, yet sales didn't reflect that. And that goes to show you that it's not always a numbers game with it. It wasn't for a general audience. It wasn't for everybody. But for those who played it and those reviewed it, it was for them. And so that wraps our coverage of Dead Space. As always, Derek, let them know. Why did we choose it? What do you think? Well, we're coming up in Spooktober right now, pretty close to Halloween. Gotta get a little spooky scary, of course. Oh, of course. Dead Space, when it came out, very, I feel like, uniquely scary in the Mm -hmm. AAA realm. There weren't a lot of games that I think did the horror thing super duper well. Obviously, you had the Resident Evil stuff. You had Silent Hill. You had these games that I feel like were so over-the-top creepy or had so many games that had come out by that point that people were looking for something to kind of refresh them. And I think Dead Space did that. You know, Alien is one of the most popular horror films of all time. And to get a game that really sort of embodies those ideas and the sci-fi aspects, as well as the horror stuff, to make that available in a AAA title that's actually good, that's actually, you know, obviously borrowing from ideas, but unique within that realm, I feel like is what made Dead Space such a cool game at the time. I was not interested in this game myself when it came out. I was working uh, with a, a friend of mine that loves the horror genre. You know, he ended up moving out to Los Angeles to work in the film industry and, you know, try and work for people within the horror cinema industry. And he recommended this game to me. And as soon as he recommended it to me, it was like, okay, this has to be for real. Like if this guy is praising it, he's super into all the horror stuff. It has to be good. And it was, it was terrifying. It's scary. Derek don't do scary. Derek is Scarface running and gunning. But when I'm (laughs) feeling like I am, you know, just (laughs) like, honestly, any moment away from death within the video game, I'm honestly terrified. I don't want to play that game in the dark. Um, It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed Dead Space. Eight out of 10 for me. How about you? All right. Numbers. They're just as spooky as the game and don't matter just as much as whose eyes it anyway. So let me tell you, let me tell you, let me tell you why we chose this. Dead Space, I mean, let's take critical acclaim away. Let's just get all that out of here. As a game in and of itself, if, I think I said this earlier, if you wanted to personify, get an idea of Alien as a video game, not, not Alien Isolation, not any of the other Alien bits, but if you wanted to take the concept, the idea of what Alien was trying to do, with you know Sigourney Weaver and everyone else that's involved with it, this I think played it out in one of the best scenarios. Again, as, as you said, like this is a story that's somewhat been told before of you know an infectious thing on a space planet, things go bad. I mean, it is aliens. It's kind of kind of what it is, but it's done so well. Again, starting with that story, especially having comic book writers and just people in, versed in that industry of knowing how to tell some narratives through panels and basically being allowed to bring that narrative point into here from like the graphic novel standpoint, bring it into be almost like a mix of graphic novel and movie in a way and have such a cool twist and such characters that you learn to hate and love, which is always like the biggest writing point to do is like 
can you have someone love a character and hate a character at the exact same time? Like, is that, can you plausibly do that? And they do. And it's done so well. It's done so creepily. And the attention to detail within sound design, within the random enemy spawn points, makes this such a replayable game, even knowing the story. I mean, there's plenty of, I mean, it's a single player game. You know the story. Yeah, you know, you know all those things when you replay it, but to have almost a different experience feel to it each time is so, so, so cool. And so if I had to rate it, I would give it uh, probably Game Over Man, It's Game Over, um, out of Bill Paxton. Divide that by how cool the cutter gun actually was. Absolutely loved just slicing and dicing. Uh, who, who doesn't love that? This is out of a question. Who doesn't love slicing and dicing? I mean, if I you could. get them giblets. You gotta get them giblets. If I could. I mean, I guess I could if I wanted to, but I don't really want to. I could have a meat slicer. That's slicing and dicing. I can go for that. I got a paper shredder. That slices and dices. Um, bring that back into the universe of just such a cool space movie in a game out of 2508 as it be that's good give me the game where we play as an evil paper shredder i'm 100 percent down on that uh humble games or anyone else listening some double fine <laughs> get on that for me yeah i think you made a really good point especially with the the comic book writers aspect mm-hmm. where it's just uh, what is a video game if not like the perfect blend between a comic book and like a television series or a film like mm-hmm. You have to remain somewhat general because if you make things too specific and really plot everything out to the T and then a player comes in and we're all unique players, we play the game differently and there's all this random generation within each room. You know, if you're trying to make things too specific, it's going to remove some of that immersion. And so definitely was the right move, I think, to bring on people that had that skill set. Yeah, because I think, you know, overall, it it just worked where it needed to work. You know, it was one of those things where, in a movie, it's so uninteractive. It's an audience watching. There's no audience participation. A game is a thousand percent audience participation. What are they doing? And and having writers that know how can adapt to that and can build to it worked out for it. And I love it. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall, Derek Baker, Evan Barr, and Richard Scanlon. The intro and outro music for this episode was composed and recorded by our friend Evan Barr. And as always, this episode was brought to you, made possible, and also selected by our patrons. So we talk about it all the time, but our Patreon's an awesome place. Got some plenty of bonus content. Got some exclusive physical media, as well as just some other little perks that you get with it. But For this episode, the patrons voted, and the patrons get what they want. Let's thank those people today with Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Trace, Mega, Nick Hyman, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, William Kroll, and Mr. Toot. So thank you all again. Really appreciate it. If you haven't yet, follow us on Instagram. We're also on Twitter, and you should absolutely join our Discord. It's a lot of fun. Alex and I are hanging out in there all the time. We're just having a lot of fun talking new Halo stuff, talking old Halo stuff, talking different video games from all over the map. So come and hang out. It's a good time. Absolutely. And if you want to check us out live, you can check us out over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That is S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. And if you want to check Derek out, 
Check him out over at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. That is thebakerman247. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you guys, and it helps us out a lot. And again, that's our coverage of Dead Space. What did you think of it? Have you played it since release? Are you excited for this 2022 update with some voice acting coming into it? Let us know. Hit us up. Love to hear from you. As always, I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Eric Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.